Well, good morning. I appreciate you guys getting up so early to be at church. Uh, you need to get an award for that. You, you know, you don't read too many books before you realize that there are many metaphors for life. I think one that grips me is the metaphor of a river. I mean, years ago, there was a movie written about such a thing. Uh, you might remember it was uh, the story of the McLean family, and they lived in Montana about the turn of the century. The dad was a Presbyterian preacher. Uh, he was strict, but he was loving, and he had two sons. Um, the oldest, Norman, is the one who tells the story in the movie, and the younger one is named Paul. Do you remember what movie that is, anybody? River Runs Through It, absolutely. A great movie, and in that movie, uh, the river was like this catalyst that initiated everything significant in the family. I mean, it was to the river the father went when he spent time and forged a relationship with his sons. And it was to the river the boys would go after they would finish the studies during the day. And when they wanted to prove their manhood, what did they do? They took a death-defying ride down the rapids of the river in a stolen boat. And when it was at the river that Paul, the youngest, uh, kind of got a reputation for being a great fly fisherman. And when Norman came back from college seeking his roots, where did he go? He went to the river. In fact, uh, the river became this defining force, this spiritual center for the family, at least in regards to the movie. Now, I'd like to suggest that there's a river that runs through every Christ follower's life. And what do you suppose that river might be? I mean, could it be God's purposes? Now, some might say, well, I bet the river is you know, the love of God or the grace of God or the forgiveness of God. But I'd like for you to think this morning of that river being the peace of God. I mean, biblically speaking, the peace of God should run through our life. It should be cascading over and around and uh, through the difficulties and um, trials that life brings. I wonder what river runs through your life. This morning, is it the river of peace or could it be a river of pain? I mean, might it be a river of discouragement or maybe guilt? Or for some, it might be a river of anger or resentment. Now, I ask those questions because that's the kind of thing that Paul raises in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, and through the process of raising those kinds of questions, he shares with us how you can have the river of peace flowing through your lives, regardless of your situation. In fact, turn with me there. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, if you brought your Bibles, we'll start in the very first verse, and you can follow along as I read. Paul begins this way. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crowned, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I employ Yoda, and I employ 
Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So the first thing you recognize as you read this is that Paul certainly has a fond affection uh, for those he serves. I mean, he addresses them as my beloved. He indicates he longs to be with them. In fact, he calls them his joy in his crown. I mean, Paul obviously uh, loved and enjoyed the Philippians, but you need to know this church was far from being perfect. In fact, there are two ladies in the church that have a disagreement with one another, and that disagreement is spilt over and impacted the rest of the church. Now, their names are Yoda and Syntyche. And these two women have supported Paul really from the beginning of him planting the church almost ten years earlier. Both of these women love Jesus, and both of these women are loved and appreciated by Paul. So I want you to imagine this morning, you're one of these women, and you got up early and you showed up in church, and the pastor stands up, and he says, I got great news. I just received this letter from Paul, and I'm going to read it during our service. And everybody's excited. I mean, they all know Paul. They were around when he visited and planted the church. And so he begins reading the letter, and you can hear a pin drop in the house. And as you listen, you're first of all struck with the faith of this aging apostle. And you find out in the letter that the rumors are true, that he is in prison. In fact, he may even be executed. But he's not discouraged. No, in fact, he says that his circumstances have worked for the greater progress of the gospel. And you think to yourself, you know, that's just like Paul. Always the optimist. And then as he reads further, you find Paul warns you about false teachers who will woo you away from the simplicity of the gospel. And you know immediately who he's talking about because you're part of the church from the beginning. And then he talks about the value of uh, unity and he illustrates it with Epaphroditus and Timothy. And you think, yeah, man, those guys, they were a great team. Now... I want you to picture in your mind your syntyche. And as Paul's letter is being read out loud, you smugly smile, you think. Man, I'm glad Yoda gets to hear this. Boy, she needs to hear that. Have you ever done that? I mean, listen to a message for someone else rather than yourself. We're all guilty of that. And then your smugness is interrupted by these words. I urge Yoda and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. I mean, can you imagine the gasp in the audience? I mean, the shock of the fact that Paul calls these women out publicly in front of everyone. I mean, why would Paul do such a thing? Well, I think... Paul understands that disunity between two Christ followers is a serious matter. I mean, disagreements between believers may not be a serious matter to us, but it's certainly a serious matter to God. When there's disunity in the body, there can be no harmony. It's like going to an orchestra, and all the instruments are playing totally different songs from one another. 
You came expecting beautiful harmonies. I mean, one note complementing the other. Instead, what do you find? You find discord, dissidence, disunity. Now, notice, he says to these ladies that they are to be of the same mind in the Lord. What does he mean by that? You know, the, the amazing thing about a tuning fork is it it really doesn't matter how many instruments you have. And it really doesn't matter what kind of instruments they are. I mean, you could have a hundred instruments. You could have thousands of instruments. If they are all tuned to the a single tuning fork, then they can play in harmony with one another. You see, all, all it really takes is each instrument staying in touch, in tune with that single note. And it can result in beautiful music. Now, the tragedy is, is all it takes is one instrument, just one To be out of tune with the tuning fork and it can ruin the whole song. Do you know the same thing is true in the church? I mean, in the church, it doesn't take much dissidence, disagreement, dissension to ruin the song that God wants that particular church to, to, to play. And that's of great concern to the Apostle Paul as he writes this letter. You see, he knows that unity is one of the most significant ways people see God in this world. I mean, in a world that's shrouded in darkness, where the enemy has blinded the eyes of people with compelling philosophies, I mean, it's hard to discern between what's real and what just seems to be real. It's hard to see clearly. So what cuts through the ambiguity? What takes the blinders off? Paul says... It's unity. And if you don't believe him, then you need to listen to Jesus. In his prayer before his arrest and crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, I want you to notice what he prays. He's praying to his heavenly Father, and he says, And the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me. Wow. I mean, no, no wonder God gets upset when Christians fight with one another, when, when churches, they split over demanding their petty preferences from one another. I mean, Jesus understands that it's the unity in the body among believers that actually proves that he came from His heavenly Father, God. And when unity is evident, it's like God has taken this light and shined it on the power and presence of God in the lives of those people. Now, that's one thing the world can't fabricate. I mean, you look across this globe, and what do you see? You see disunity and dissension among genders, among races, among uh, nationalities, along socioeconomic lines. And yet, Paul is saying the unity among Christ followers ought to transcend all of that. In fact, 
This issue is so important, he employs others to get involved. Look at verse 3. I urge you also, true companion, keep these women who labor with me in the gospel. Help these women who labor with me in the gospel. With Clement also. And the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, your faith may be personal. But Paul wants you to know it's not private. The road to disharmony is never a one-way street. Disagreement requires two individuals. And the discord you feel when you're out of sorts with another person... Paul says, can affect what God wants to do in the world and do in this body, and it can also dam up the river of peace he wants to have flow through our lives. So I think if Paul were here today, I think he'd be asking the hard questions. He'd say, are you out of sorts with somebody in this body? Or he might say, are you out of sorts with somebody in another body and you've left that body and come over to this body because you can't be in that body with that other person? Or he might even ask, do you have a strong disagreement with another Christ follower in your workplace? And you think, nobody notices, it's just between me and that person. Paul would say, no. No, that's not true. Your faith, it may be personal to you, but it's not private. How you handle that means everything. It's like the proverbial pebble that's been tossed in the perfectly steel pond. And eventually that pond is disturbed by all of the ripples. So I think Paul would say you go to that person. You don't hesitate. You go to them and you try to work out those differences the best you can. And in that process, you might learn a few things. You might learn about seeking and granting forgiveness. But I also think Paul would go further than that. I mean, I think he'd say if somebody comes to you and wants to draw you into their complaint, their, their dark world of grumbling about someone else, you stop it right there. But you even take it another step further. You say, I see you have some issues with this person. Why don't we talk about how you can approach them and talk about those issues? And then you become this catalyst to help this individual handle their conflicts in a healthy fashion. But I think there's a deeper question than that here. He's just not asking how do you relate to another person. He's really asking us how do you relate to God. You see, conflict with another person may say more about your relationship with God than it does about the weaknesses you find in the other person. Listen, in the church, conflict is no small thing, according to Paul. Now, I love the way that Peanut's cartoon talks about conflict. It's like you got Lucy and you got Snoopy together in the first panel. Lucy says, you know, there are times when you really bug me. And then the second panel, but I must admit, there are also times when I feel like giving you a hug. And then Snoopy responds, that's the way I am, buggable and huggable. You know, that's the way we all are, aren't we? We're buggable and we're huggable at the same time. I mean, we mistreat others through verbal misrepresentations. Maybe it's uh, stubborn wills, could be childish squabbles. 
But Paul says in this passage, he's not saying this won't happen. He says expect it to happen. And when it does happen, you go to that person and you learn how to seek and grant forgiveness. And if you don't, it says more about your relationship with God than it says about the weaknesses you find in that other individual. So you want peace in your life? Well, it begins by cultivating connection with one another, but that's not all. What else is required is cultivating confidence in God. I mean, Paul doesn't end the letter by just uh, telling Yoda and Syntyche to work these differences out between you. Now get to it. No, he wants to deliver to us a perspective that will help us move towards people, especially those we might be in conflict with. And if practiced consistently over time, it will deliver the river of peace in your life. Look at verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your goodness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, if anybody had an excuse not to be joyful, it had to be Paul. I mean, you think about it. He's got two dear friends that are squabbling with one another. Not only that, their, their disagreement is spilling over and affecting the church he planted almost ten years earlier. But and not only that, he finds himself in prison and he's facing the possibility of execution. If anybody had a right not to be joyful, it would certainly be this man, Paul, But Paul has cultivated a different attitude. I mean, Paul understood that cultivating confidence with God will encourage you to be joyful. Notice he says it twice in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So how do we rejoice in the midst of conflict? Well, it means looking at your conflict. Through God's control and what He is wanting to do. And it means not focusing necessarily on the hurtful circumstances or focusing on the the person that hurt you or, or the cruel comments that came your way. Instead of focusing on those things, you focus on the one who wants to walk with you through this conflict, who will be right by your side in that process. And so you get your eyes off your agenda And you focus on God's agenda and what He might be doing in this process. And when you do that, it's going to create some discomfort in you. It just is. But it leads down a path that will eventually lead to genuine joy. So it begins by getting the right focus on God's agenda. But secondly, notice... Cultivating confidence in God will encourage you to be kind-hearted. Notice what Paul says. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, that word gentleness is a rich word in the Greek text. Now, that's, that's the original language the New Testament was written in 2,000 years ago. In fact, we have trouble translating this very word into English. Uh, this word conveys the idea of not demanding your way, not being easily defended. Uh, It has to do with putting up with others who might let you down. It's exactly the opposite of becoming easily irritated at another person's weaknesses or shortcomings. I mean, in short, what he's saying 
is you're not going to be preoccupied with self. In fact, Les Carter, in his book, The Missing Piece, put it this way. Preoccupation with self is the beginning of all emotional problems. And I might add conflicts in the church as well. Now, notice, Paul says that you can have the right perspective in conflict because the Lord is at hand. In other words, you can put up with people's shortcomings, their failures, their limitations, because you have confidence in the one who sees everything. The one who knows exactly what's going on. He is the one who will set the record straight one day with clarity. Did you know that's the very perspective Jesus had when he hung on the cross? In fact, I'd love you to see the way Peter describes Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, in talking about Jesus, he says this, When he, that is Jesus... When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So what did he do? Well, instead, he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who's that? That's God, the one who sees it all, the the one who knows what's really going on. He entrusted himself, in other words, to God. Do you know what, what I have to do at times like that? When I want my way... And I feel blocked. Or or, or I want something in particular and I I can't get it. And some situation or an individual is keeping me from what I want. I I have a Nerf ball in my office. I also have one at home. And I, I let this Nerf ball kind of be my way, my desires, my personal preferences. I mean, what I'm wanting and I'm not getting. And so I'll take this Nerf ball and I'll just put it in my hand and I'll grip it tighter and tighter, just like I'm emotionally gripping my way, what I want. And I'll grip it as tight as I can and I'll hold it there for a second and then I realize I've got to let that thing go. And so I just open my hand and I roll it out of my hand and I roll it over there on the floor as if I've just rolled it to God. I mean, it's it's what I want, but I've just given it to him, and so it can stay over there. And sometimes it stays there for two or three days, because I'm real quick to pull it back. And so that's a reminder to me that I've given that over to God. And so I roll it my way, my desires out of my hands, and I let God be in charge of that. And I become less preoccupied with self when I do that. And as a result, I discover I start becoming a little more kind-hearted in dealing with people. So it begins by having the right focus. Secondly, it's letting go of your agenda and trusting God to His agenda. But notice Paul also says that confidence in God will encourage you to be prayerful. I mean, look at verse 6. He says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Now, what Paul is literally saying here is stop it. Stop being anxious. I mean, the construction of the sentence in the Greek 
means he assumes that when we have conflict with one another, we're going to be anxious. We're going to worry. So he simply says here, stop being anxious. And that word anxious is fascinating. You know that word means to be pulled in two different directions at the same time. And it's a picture of a mental tug of war going on inside of us. I mean, isn't that exactly what happens when you're in conflict with somebody else? I mean, you play it out in your mind, don't you? And our hope is that this person's going to get what they deserve, and that pulls us one direction. And our fear is they won't get what they deserve. That pulls us in the other direction. And this mental tug of war is going on inside of us. And Paul says, instead of doing that, instead of this anxiousness, this worry, I want you to replace it with prayer. And he uses three different synonyms for conversation with God to emphasize his point. He says, prayer, supplication, and request. In other words, instead of worrying and being anxious, Paul says, try communicating with God. Let Him know everything that's going on in on your heart. I mean, the good, the bad, the ugly. All of it said it is His feet, confident that He hears every word and that He can respond and will respond. But I want you to notice what happens next when you do that. Paul doesn't say you'll get your way. He doesn't even say that guy will come to you or that gal will come to you and apologize and admit that they're wrong and you were right. What does he say? Instead, the peace of God will guard your heart and your minds. Did you know that word guard is a military term? It was used to describe a Roman garrison whose job it was to protect and watch over an entire city. Now, I want you to notice Paul does not say you'll receive peace with God. I mean, you get that the moment you put your faith in Christ and become a Christ follower. And he doesn't say you'll get peace from God. I mean, that's available to all Christ followers. All you've got to do is ask. He says you get the peace of God. Do you know that's the only place that phrase is used in the entire Bible? I mean, so what does he mean? Well, he's talking about the very peace of God himself. You see, peace, just like love, is a part of God's character. It's what he experiences moment by moment. And amazingly, here, it's this peace is what he offers to share with us when we cultivate this confidence in him in the midst of the conflict. In other words, he wants to share his very character with us. Now, that is amazing. So, so when you have conflict with another believer, you've got to cultivate connection with them. You've got to cultivate confidence in God. So what's the next step? He tells us we've got to cultivate control over our thinking. And look at verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure... Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. If there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. I mean, this 
These verses are simply implying that we can make deliberate choices as to regard what we give prominence to in our minds. I mean, imagine for a moment all the things that do run through your mind in the midst of a conflict. I mean, you replay the argument. Uh, You think of things you wished you had said but didn't. You think of things you shouldn't have said but did. And you replay that argument 10, 15 times in your mind. And in every case, what do you do? You win the argument, don't you? We always do. We always win the argument. So Paul understands that we can't control the things that just flash upon the mental screens of our mind. But he does know we can change the channels. And that's what he's getting at here. You see, our thoughts have power to affect outcomes. They have power to affect our behavior. Even though you can't see them, you can't feel them, they don't have substance to us, you can't measure them, they have a direct connection to how we act, how we feel, and how we respond. In fact, a number of years ago, Norman Cousins, in his book, The Anatomy of an Illness, tells of being hospitalized with a rare, debilitating illness. Now, Cousins understood the power behind negative thoughts and how it can create problems in your body. So he concluded, if that's true, then the opposite must be true as well. So what he ended up doing is borrowing a movie projector, and he prescribed his own treatment of Marx Brothers films, and old candid camera reruns. And he would just watch them. And it didn't take cousins long to discover that watching ten minutes of a Marx Brothers film would relieve him of two hours of excruciating pain. Well, eventually his debilitating disease was reversed, and his case was written up in the New England Journal of Medicine. It became a landmark study on the power of the mind, our thoughts. Now, what Cousins had to learn through a debilitating disease, Paul is offering us here free of charge. He's saying instead of focusing on getting even, seeking revenge, trying to settle the score, instead of focusing on that, he's saying, I need you to focus on what is noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy. And as you do, it'll impact your attitude, which will impact your behavior, and will have a dramatic effect on how you engage the person with your actions. See, I think Paul would agree with the old adage. You've probably heard of it. You sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you're going to reap a character. And you sow a character, and you're going to reap a destiny. Now, now you've got to remember that back in verse 7, Paul told us that if we cultivate connection with one another, confidence in God, and control over our thinking, we will receive the peace of God. But that's not the whole picture. It's a whole lot more than that. Look at that last phrase in verse 9. We'll not only receive the peace of God, but you'll experience the presence of the God of peace. Now, that's a river worth having flow in your life. 
a river deep and wide. Father, thank you for this pointed passage of Scripture. May it encourage us to take responsibility for the things in our life that we need to engage on your agenda with. And let go of our agenda. Help us to do that. And help us engage with cultivating that dependence, that connection with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for coming and enjoy the rest of your day. You might want to take a nap. See you next week.